listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsuit, and today it is Friday, January 13th, 2023. I'm joined here on Zoom by two academics, Nazanin Zadeh Cummings and Daniel Chubb, to talk about humanitarian work in North Korea and human rights of North Koreans and where these two areas intersect. But before we begin, please leave a review about this podcast and a rating and like and subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you use. And please share this episode with colleagues and friends and even frenemies, especially frenemies, in fact. Uh, secondly, check out NK News, where you can find lots of in-depth stories written by my excellent colleagues every day. Consider buying a subscription for a year because it's much more affordable than you think, and it helps to fund the work that we do here at NK News. Thirdly, on Twitter, you can follow NK News at nknews.org and me at JackOZ. Now, to introduce my two guests today, Dr. Daniel Chubb is a senior lecturer in international relations in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University and a founding member of the POLIS group in the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization at Deakin University. That's quite a mouthful. You can find her on Twitter at Daniel underscore CHB. We'll put the link in the show notes. And Dr. Nazanin Zadeh Cummings is the Associate Director of Research at the Center for Humanitarian Leadership at Deakin University Save the Children Australia Partnership, and a lecturer in humanitarian studies in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University. You can find her on Twitter at NZA Cummings. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Together, they have co-written a paper called International Engagement with North Korea, Disability, Human Rights, and Humanitarian Aid, published online on 18th of November last year in Third World Quarterly. Go online and check that out. You'll certainly want to after hearing today's episode. Uh, welcome on the show, Daniel and Nazanin. Good afternoon, Jacko. And actually, this is Nazanin here. If I may make a little addendum. Um, Please. Since, since January 1st, both uh, Danielle and I have new titles. Um, oh. Danielle was promoted to associate professor and I was promoted to senior lecturer. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Jacko. Hi, it's great to be here today. Okay, now it often seems that there's a gulf between people who work on North Korean humanitarian issues and those who focus on North Korean human rights. There's rarely a public forum where you'll see people from both groups represented and talking to each other. Sometimes there are even accusations of bad faith from one or the other, or they won't be photographed together or seen in the same room. Daniel, you have a research interest in the interplay between human rights, peace and security norms, particularly on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and Nazanin, you have uh, you research international humanitarian engagement with the DPRK. So it sounds like you have knowledge of both sides of this equation. Can I ask each of you to talk about what your interest in North Korea is and how this paper, this joint paper, came about? Um, sure, Jacka. That's a really great introduction to it, I think, actually, because um, certainly both of us have been working on, I guess, what you would broadly call human security issues on the Korean Peninsula for all of our academic careers. But from so is that like an umbrella term that inc incorporates both human rights and humanitarian concerns? I mean, that's the way I'm using it. That's the way we've yeah. kind of chosen to use it in our, in our most recent research. Because I think that both what both, I guess, sides or both camps have in common is that they are interested in bringing about a better living environment for North Koreans. So they're interested in, mm -hmm. in North Korean people having more security in their everyday lives, um, but obviously come at it from different angles. So I guess... To answer your question, I have been looking at this question for you know about 20 years now. I've been looking at primarily I've been interested in the question of 
how the international community and specifically I've been interested in non-state actors, so human rights activists or non-government mm. organisations have tried to first put this issue of human rights in North Korea on the international agenda, which was really the focus for the first 10 years or so up until the 2014 um, report from the UN um, Commission of Inquiry. And for a long time, that was a really big challenge for human rights activists because, well, for two main reasons. I think the first, without going into too much detail, was um, because of the information uncertainty. You know, these human rights groups live and die by their accuracy, particularly big human rights groups. And so the difficulties mm. with cross-checking and verifying information in North Korea was difficult. And so a large focus of, and, you know, much of the energy of these human rights activists went into creative ways to overcome this information gap and as we know that was successful insofar as we had this you know this is now on the UN's agenda firmly on the UN's agenda we saw this in the most recent um, UPR process universal periodic review process but without going into detail on that the second thing I think that's really interesting and you alluded to that is this idea that um, this is a tricky issue for many the human rights situation in North Korea because and particularly for those in governments and for those in the humanitarian sector who wish to foster productive relationships with the North Korean government there mm. is a lot that you can't talk about and so regardless of whether you think human rights is important and I would say that with almost without exception actors in the, in these areas do think that human rights is important there's a lot of disagreement about what role human rights should play in, in any discussion. And so while I've been interested in this, but I haven't, um, you know, this is where I'll, I'll turn over to Nazanin because this is where my collaboration with Nazanin has been so interesting because what she knows has filled in the gaps of what I've always wanted to know more about. It almost seemed like fate or destiny that you two are at the same <laughs> educational institution in Australia, isn't it? It's very handy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so maybe I'll I'll jump in here um, with a little Please, bit yes. around on, you know, the approach that I've taken and the, the background that I have. So I have a humanitarian studies background. That's what I did my master's in. And then in 2014, I started a PhD on humanitarian NGOs working in North Korea. Um, so I've been looking at these issues since then. So for about eight years. And so I'm really interested in how primarily international humanitarian actors, as opposed to perhaps South Korean humanitarian actors, I mainly focus on, on international actors, um, mm -hmm. you know, how they approach this difficult problem of working in North Korea, of trying to do work on the ground in the country to positively impact the well-being of North Korean people. You know, I would define humanitarian aid as a uh, form of support to people undergoing some kind of crisis, whether that's short-term or long-term, as in the case of North Korea to improve their well-being in a rather urgent manner. And so I've been really interested in how humanitarians navigate the many, many dilemmas that North Korea presents. And so this paper is, and this collaboration with Danielle is um, kind of putting together our two kind of camps of experience, the perspectives that we've um, been reading, the communities in which we engage, and trying to kind of look across them and see what we can learn from one another and what we can learn more broadly about international engagement with North Korea that has the aim of improving the well-being of North Koreans. Mm. Yes, uh, Daniel, you made the point earlier that, uh, that both sides, uh, they have a common desire to help the people of North Korea. Uh, but in your paper, though, you write that the separation of human rights and humanitarian concerns by the international community raises concerns about the potential for real progress in either sector. And I'm curious about why that is. Why does that separation raise 
concerned about real progress? That's a really good question. I think we both um, shared this um, concern. It was kind of what motivated us to write this because certainly you could go about, you know, humanitarian workers can continue to do their work and human rights activists can continue to do their work. And I mm. think there's a lot of need for both of these uh, activities to happen separately because you do need both types of activity and there does need to be a separation. But what we know, and uh, and increasingly I think we're seeing movements at the UN particularly, is that you will never have real progress in one side than you if unless you have progress in both. So if you want to bring about better outcomes in healthcare in North Korea, you do need to address the inequalities that drive from kind of political and ideological and cultural sources in North Korea around access to healthcare. So it's not simply about um, building up the um, facilities and training medical practitioners. It's also about who gets access to healthcare and what are the criteria for that. So which is a, you know, that's a political civil human rights issue. And so that's, I think, where actors on both sides understand that, you know, human rights actors understand that there's no point bringing about change in political rights if you if people don't have the ability to go to good schools and get good health care. But as well, I think humanitarians, uh, certainly in private conversations, recognise that human rights is a really important part of the picture as well. Mm. Now, I understand that uh, there's different principles that, that underlie, uh, on the one hand, human rights work, and on the other hand, humanitarianism. So if you could sort of give us in a nutshell, what are the principles of humanitarianism, Nazanin? Sure. So the mainstream Western-based international humanitarian sector um, has four core principles. These are the principle of humanity, so addressing suffering wherever it's found, the principle of impartiality, so that's um, uh, addressing need um, without bias, um, mm -hmm. The principle of neutrality, so not taking sides in conflict, and the principle of independence, so acting with autonomy. So these four principles, I do want to underline that while they're often called the humanitarian principles, there are other ways to be a humanitarian, and those four principles can be used by lots of organizations as kind of a guide, but as mm -hmm. uh, any listener might immediately pick up, they're really hard to operationalize fully, particularly in a context like North Korea. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, right. Uh, and, and Daniel, what are the principles of, uh, of human rights? I mean, they're not so quite so easy to uh, encapsulate, um, but I think if we try to understand the differences, well, one of the similarities first perhaps is that of humanity, and we talk about this in our most recent paper, but quite obviously one of the differences is that you cannot be impartial if you're a human mm. rights activist. By its very nature, it's political, and you are criticising an actor for not living mm. up to their human rights obligations. And so that is where, I guess, the real, not divide, but that is where... Um, human rights and humanitarian actors need to have a conversation, I guess. That's where the uh, the differences come in. And this is something that both, I think, sectors or areas, certainly the humanitarian sector has grappled this very, with this very openly um, within among themselves, but also mm -hmm. um, with the international community. And human rights activists think and talk about this as well, I think. And does the uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the, 19, the late 1940s fit in there somewhere? I mean, yes, it does, of course. And and if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it encapsulates humanitarian principles very clearly and definitively. Um, but what we have seen in some areas, and I think that the sensitivity of human rights in the North Korea space and the politicization often of these issues means that there has been a very mm -hmm. overt focus 
uh, among much of the human rights community on political and civil rights rather than mm. economic, social and cultural rights. And that's certainly been a criticism aimed at the international human rights community. I mean, there's a lot we can, could say about that. I'm not sure how helpful it would be for it. Well, because... actually, no, I, I did. It's, you've preempted my very next question okay. about this uh, this frequent division of human rights into these two uh, tranches, if you will, of economic, social and cultural rights on the one hand and civil and political rights on the other. So why is that division made and, and what does it mean? So, I mean, this division is made, it's it's almost an academic division in some ways. It's, um, I think, meaningfully, it's, it doesn't exist. If you look at the Commission of Inquiry into North Korean human rights, there is a lot of discussion of all of those rights very clearly and explicitly. I think what mm -hmm. the headlines are around accountability and political rights because they're the ones that have attracted the most attention. They're the ones that are perhaps most concerning around crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it's an oversimplification to say that the human rights community is only interested in political and civil rights. And certainly since the 2014 report where that community has been able to spend more time thinking about outcomes um, mm -hmm. in North Korea rather than just about how do we get this onto the agenda. I think that there has been, if you look at the um, agendas for different human rights groups getting together and talking about things, you'll see things like the right to food security and the right to healthcare on these agendas. I think it is something that's being talked about very openly and in the Human Rights Council as well. And the Seoul Office for um, North Korean Human Rights talks about this and has even published a report on food security in North Korea. So I think this is a divide that is less and less relevant, um, but mm. it is a historical divide that has captured the attention of, of many. It is often used as a criticism. And Nazarene, how does this division of human rights into the two groups affect humanitarian organisations' ability to incorporate evidence of human rights abuses in North Korea into their work? Yeah, I think maybe I'll preface that question by clarifying as well that this is North Korea, I think, is a context where these debates and divisions come out quite strongly. But this is not unique, of course, to North Korea. In uh -huh. many other contexts, people are having these same discussions and these same debates around the indivisibility of rights. You know, people don't experience rights violations in little boxes, um, just mm -hmm. the way they don't experience human rights abuses and humanitarian needs separately. It's all intertwined in the human experience. And in this particular case, we're talking about the North Korean experience. And so we draw a lot on that kind of global literature as well as the Korea-specific literature. And so I think when we're talking specifically about North Korea, um, you know, some critics of the humanitarian approach might point to something like prison camps. Humanitarian organizations are not present in prison camps, yet uh, mm. claim to want to reach the most vulnerable. And so, you know, from one perspective, criticism could be, well, can you really be reaching the most vulnerable if you're not reaching people in prison camps who have a pretty extreme violation of their civil and political rights and their freedom of expression? But I think on the other side, we do see that humanitarians are engaging in the ways that are possible under the constraints of the regime, and that they do also overtly engage with human rights ideals, you know, things like the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, North Korea is party to several of these United Nations conventions on human rights. And so those do feature prominently in North Korea humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. And so I think there we do see a little bit of that transcending of the divide from the humanitarian side as well. Now, I want to uh, come back to a point that uh, it, it's often mentioned, but it's never really 
people tend not to dig too deep or to try to pull it apart. I think, Danielle, you said a few minutes ago that North Korea is highly sensitive about any criticism of how it treats its population or discussion of, of human rights. We've heard from, I think even on this podcast, from uh, diplomats who in the past, when they raised the topic of human rights, that that would immediately uh, trigger the North Koreans to read out a, a, a long and vociferous statement in a loud voice that would shut down any conversation. So just wonder, why is it that North Korea is... Uh, so sensitive about any criticism of how it treats its population? Oh, I mean, that's a big question, Jacko. I I mean, where to start? I think, I mean, the most obvious answer to that is that it's deeply ingrained into North Korea's psyche that these Western ideals of human rights are not relevant to them. You know, there's mm. been um, many who've done, you know, Jay Song, who I know you've spoken to on this podcast before, has done some really interesting work looking at the ways in which um, North Korea conceives human rights norms. It's quite different. So that's one answer. I think another answer is that it, um, when it comes to the concessions that North Korea is willing to make, the concession to make its society more open is firmly not one of them. That is the one on mm. which it is least willing to be flexible because really the survivability of its regime depends upon it. It saw what happened in other societies when they allowed some kind of opening. And this is the problem that the international community faces. It's really kind of a really difficult problem to for them to face. I kind of saw that answer coming. So I, I, what makes it uh, interesting or what, what I find odd is that North Korea doesn't publicly and vociferously message that it rejects Western-centric standards of human rights, uh, not simply because North Korea views them as covers for, North, uh, for US imperialism or, or Western militarism, but because it proudly holds to its own standards. I, I just wonder why North Korea doesn't say, hey, uh, we've got our own uh, ideas of human rights, and, and this is what they are, you know, since it teaches, inter you know, internally within North Korea, the government teaches that, uh, for example, the well-being of the individual is subservient to the well-being of the nation. Uh, so why not say that loudly and proudly in public forums outside North Korea? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we have the answer to why North Korea does the things <laughs> that it does. But I think that your line of questioning is exactly the kind of things that led us to write this paper, because mm. we were looking at North Korea's engagement in the disability rights space in particular. So in 2016, North Korea ratified the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And then less than six months later, welcomed the then Special Rapporteur for Human Rights of Persons with Disabilities, Catalina de Vandas Aguilar, to... Yeah. North Korea. And this was the first time a UN Human Rights Council appointed expert was granted um, access into North Korea. Not the first time one had asked to come, but the first time one was was permitted mm. to come. And so, you know, we were kind of and, you know, the backdrop of that as well is that for many years, different humanitarian organizations had been engaging in disability issues in North Korea, um, you know, very notably Handicap International, now known as Humanity and Inclusion, was resident in North Korea since 2001. And so, you know, we'd seen this many, many years of engagement with humanitarian groups on disability issues. But then when we saw started to see this, um, you know, the ratification of the CRPD and the visit of uh, the special rapporteur, we were also asking mm. these questions, okay, well, why is North Korea engaging in this way? Um, and we realized that, again, we, we, we don't know why North Korea does what it does. I think sometimes it can be interesting to sit around and debate that, but we realized that, you know, we weren't going to come up with an answer, but what we could look at is how then are international actors engaging on this issue, particularly these actors, as, as we've discussed it, do have quite different approaches to this problem of how to improve the well-being of North Koreans. Yes, and, and let's uh, get into that there. So you're 
your paper raises the, the rights of the disabled in North Korea as a uh, as a possible area of agreement or at least shared interest between humanitarian and human rights workers. So if you could tell us a bit more about why that is, that would be really interesting. Sure. So, um, yeah, so we asked this question, you know, why is disability rights an area that has gained traction across the human rights and humanitarian approaches? Um, and ultimately, you know, to put it in a nutshell, we found kind of two two main reasons. You know, one was that there is a belief amongst these actors that they see evidence of improvements in this area, mm -hmm. in an area and, you know, that North Korea is very difficult to understand, yet despite these challenges that people still see evidence of improvements. And then the second being that actors see potential for further meaningful change, both within the lives of people with disabilities specifically, but also perhaps for North Korean human security more broadly. So that's kind of the, the argument in a nutshell, right? Is that both, both humanitarian actors and human rights actors see evidence of improvements and also see potential for future meaningful changes in a really difficult to understand environment. Mm. In your paper, you write that... Um... Uh, human rights models of disability provide a framework for understanding action without requiring a common perception of the meaning of disability. Can you help us to uh, unpack and understand what that means, Danielle? So there's when we're thinking about disability and how um, different societies come to grapple with the rights of, I guess, people with disability or how to um, better incorporate people with disability into society, there's a, I guess, a field of study, disability studies, that has tried to produce um, conceptual models that can help us understand the pitfalls, I guess, and the opportunities available in different approaches, but also the ways in which different societies approach these questions. So what we're most familiar with in Western societies is a social model of disability. It's a model of disability that moves away from seeing disability as um, an impairment to saying, well, the problem is not that people have disabilities. The problem is that society has not allowed persons who are, who are different, who have different physical or uh, mental needs to um, participate fully in society. So the onus then is put on society to make the change. And there's a real emphasis here on governments creating that change. And when we were look, looking at the ways in which different um, actors approach disability in North Korea, you know, we, one might think that this kind of very progressive model would be applicable, but actually, this was a difficult model to apply in the North Korean context because it doesn't allow for a different kind of society in which putting the onus on government is not helpful or putting the onus mm. on groups to advocate for change is not helpful because that's not just not something that's available. Uh, in North Korea, there's not going to mm. be a grassroots change um, for social progress in that way. And so the human rights model of disability is one that tries to understand how we can progress disability policy in any particular context according to human rights principles. And I think this comes back really to the question you asked earlier about why doesn't North Korea just reject human rights? Because I don't mm -hmm. think, I mean, I think North Korea would say that actually within North Korea, you have the best possibility for realising your human rights. That's what they would say. And um, they're not saying that people in North Korea suffer because they put community first. They're saying that they prosper and they flourish. And so it's not really possible to reject um, the human rights uh, conventions, um, although we have seen, you know, this is going a little bit off topic, we have seen North Korea try to withdraw some, from some of those conventions, which you, you can't do. Um, mm -hmm. And so what North Korea has been forced to do instead, and this is really since the Commission of Inquiry report, 
is to engage more fully with human rights bodies within the UN. Uh, at first, you know, when I when I speak to human rights activists, kind of who are familiar with these processes, who watch these very closely, they say that first, when North Korea started engaging with the universal periodic review process, which is a process that all countries have to engage in, you know, Australia yeah. engages in this uh, and is often criticised for its record on um, refugees and Indigenous yeah. rights and has to be answerable to the international community. Just and so so is North Korea. At first, they tried to just bluster. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't work because you need to show concretely, you know, people come back. This is a, it's a very cyclical process. And so in 2019, you saw uh, a lot of give and take between the different, and these are not just, you know, um, the US or Australia criticizing North Korea. It's other countries with whom North Korea may believe itself to have a good relationship, you know, asking mm. questions about, well, what about the capacity for children to get access to healthcare? Or what about persons with disabilities? And so of all the recommendations, for example, in 2015, sorry, in the 2019, I think it was Universal Periodic Review or UPR, 15 of those recommendations from the international community um, had to do with persons with disabilities and 14 of those the DPRK accepted mm. as or supported, I think is the right language. And so that will be, I'm interested to see, I think that they're next due to face the UPR process in 2024. And it'll be interesting, they'll be asked to show progress on those certainly those 14 recommendations. So the human rights model gives us, you know, it, it emphasizes the indivisibility of rights, which we were talking about mm -hmm. before. And it also kind of talks about ways in which we don't need to actually uh, rely on grassroots actors to bring about change. It's more about providing an infrastructure for that change to occur. And that's the, that support for 14 of the 15 uh, items that you mentioned that's that's quite a turnaround in uh, in North Korea's track record of engaging with uh, UN agencies on human rights isn't it I think so yes I um when I was thinking about this this morning I was thinking I should do a uh, maybe someone's already done it but do a uh, a comparison with previous rounds but I would say mm. instinctively as you say this seems you know unusual yeah uh, Nathanin, can you tell us about disability in general in North Korea? How can we understand North Korea's approach to dis disability issues and people with disabilities? Sure. So, you know, I think one thing that we, you know, we don't know a lot about disabilities in North Korea. We don't know the experiences of people with disabilities. And I do want to underline that, of course, these are varied experiences. There is not one singular experience mm. of disability in North Korea. Um, there is some literature that we um, cite in the paper that you know talks about perhaps the different perceptions North Koreans may have of people with disability, depending on the type of disability or whether it was acquired or something at birth. Um, so there is a little bit of, of information out there about this, but there's a lot we don't know we do, that we don't know about people's experiences. But what we do know is that North Korea officially says in the last census in 2008 said there was about 1.6 million people with disabilities um, living in the country, which is a bit seems a bit low. The World Health Organization estimates that globally about 15% of the population has a disability or multiple disabilities. Uh, 15%, um, okay. 15%. So that would be about 3.75 million North Koreans if there's 25 mm -hmm. million North Koreans. Um, but the, cent the 2008 census said about 1.55. So seems a bit low. And I think it's also important to note that, of course, disability is not static. Um, a person may become disabled later in their life um, or may be born with a disability. So people's experiences with disability may also fluctuate during their life. But either way, those numbers to me seem a bit low. Um, mm. 
And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of updated information. I was checking in some of the more recent humanitarian documents, particularly the needs and priorities document that was put out um, on an annual basis outlining humanitarian programming for the year. And I saw that in uh, 2014, uh, Humanity and Inclusion cites a disability sample survey that also found 1.6 million people in North Korea to be disabled. Um, but at the same time, the uh, needs and parties document did call out for better data um, on people with disabilities. So we don't know exactly how many North Koreans are disabled. Again, I think these estimates seem quite low. But what we... Do we know, does North Korea have perhaps... Uh differing definitions of, of what constitutes a disability or not? It's a great question. Um, I know that there is often tends to be a focus on physical disabilities in North Korea, and there seems to mm. be quite an emphasis as well on people who are deaf and blind. Um, this is actually something that Catalina Devandas Aguilar points out in her report, that she found this to be an area that North Korea was engaging with in particular. I don't know the definitions that North Korea uses off the top of my head. I think that would be a really interesting piece of research. Mm. So I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I think maybe a partial response to that question that I can also draw from Catalina Devandas Aguilar's report is that um, she wasn't able to visit any mental health services um, and was rejected any of uh, her requests to do so. So saw, again, more of a, an emphasis on physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. Danielle, that so that visit uh, in 2017 by Catalina Devandas Aguilar was, was uh, as we've said before, the first time that a UN Human Rights Council appointed expert had been granted ex uh, access to North Korea. What can we learn from it? And was it really uh, a significant game changer? I'm not sure what we can learn from it. You know, this was a question that we asked all of our interviewees in our research. You know, why do you think it is that North Korea said yes to this? Um, mm. Is it because this is an easier issue? I mean, I don't think that that's a satisfactory answer because the rights of um, children is a, you know, a quote unquote easy issue, right? Like nobody disagrees right. that children shouldn't be um, right. given their full set of rights and also the rights of women. That's something that North Korea holds itself as a, a kind of a world leading actor on, whether or not we agree with that or not. That's certainly something North Korea um, talks about. So why it let in this, it's, it's possibly timing. It could be things we'll never know about around, you know, maybe somebody at the UN who had a lot of influence, had a child with a disability and saw that this was, you know, that child had had great support and opportunity and they were really proud of it and wanted to showcase it. I mean, that, that's just completely uh, a guess, but I, what, I guess my point is that there could be something like that that we'll never really know. Right. And was it a game changer? I mean, I think... It's a game changer for disability in North Korea, hopefully. COVID's put a bit of a damper on this because we just don't, you know, mm. as we as you would know very well, this is um really closed the country off. But yeah. you know what Katalina Devandas Aguila said, which has really stayed with me, is that from her perspective, you know, she's a woman in a wheelchair. And in North Korea, if you watch North Korean films or any kind of North Korean popular culture, you do not see any persons with disabilities represented. And for her, yeah. it was important that. You know, these people, people in North Korea with disabilities could see that a, a person with disabilities um, can be in this, you know, high profile job. So that's, I think, you know, this question of representation is important mm. from, from that perspective, which I think, you know, that's not nothing. That's something that should be, any progress could be celebrated, I think. Yeah. Now, Natalie, I've got a potentially sensitive question for you. Um, in your paper, it says that humanitarian groups tend to engage with local authorities and stay silent on 
civil and political rights issues and approach they see as necessary to ensure continued access to vulnerable populations inside North Korea. And I'm, I'm wondering, isn't this effectively making humanitarian groups shoulder responsibility for whether or not the North Korean government decides to give them continued access to vulnerable populations? Yeah, thanks, Jekko. I, I think, again, that, that question really speaks also to a wider dilemma in the humanitarian world. No situation is apolitical. When you go in to support or when you're invited to provide support, mm. there are always difficult choices that actors have to make. I, I would argue that to provide aid in North Korea is not, you know, the goal of humanitarian organizations is to provide support that is life-saving and that urgently addresses issues of well-being for North Korean people. Yeah. You know, the UN documents um, from right before the pandemic that had some of the goals, the contemporary goals, you know, things around malnutrition, inadequate access to water and sanitation. And I think, you know, talking back about the indivisibility of rights, from one perspective, these are rights issues, right? It's like people's right to clean water, people's right to mm. food. Of course, without the full enjoyment of civil and political rights, you can't say that people are fully enjoying their human rights, but it is, I think, an aspect of the full picture of human security. So I think, you know, it is a really challenging decision. And we've seen humanitarian organizations grapple sometimes quite publicly with these issues. Um, for those of you that have been watching North Korea and international engagement for a while might remember um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, humanitarian organizations leaving sometimes very, mm. very publicly because they yeah. felt the environment was not conducive to be able to do their work. But I think it's important to remember that the environment is not static. I think the international humanitarian community has learned a lot about North Korea, and North Korea has learned a lot about engaging with humanitarians as well. Mm. So I don't think it's fair to say, you know, it's it's propping up the regime. I mean, I don't, if it was so simple as without humanitarian aid, the regime would crumble, <laughs> that would have happened now with COVID. And we know that that's not the case. Um, right. I think if it was that that simple, then the regime would not have been, would not be very strong. But we know that, you know, it's not humanitarian organizations that are making the difference about whether the regime survives or not. So yeah, that would be my response to that critique. Okay. Now, in, in researching this paper, you uh, carried out long in-depth interviews with eight workers in the uh, fields of humanitarian and human rights work. Tell us a little bit about that process. And, and also, uh, after that, uh, what kind of patterns you see or, or what you learned from that? Um, so that was, yeah, that was, a, that was kind of the core of our research. And that was what Nazanin and I were seeking to do, because we both over the years, as you've probably gathered, we've built up kind of networks of, in, in our two different communities. And the nature of this, it doesn't mean that humanitarian workers wouldn't speak to me or that human rights workers wouldn't speak to Nazanin, but it is, it's complicated and we have to proceed very carefully. So because we already have these networks that trust us, we were able to both um, individually speak to people in these spaces. So we, we've kept all of our interviewees anonymous, um, but both mm -hmm. of us, it was about a 50-50 divide between human rights and humanitarian workers. And we asked them, you know, ranges of questions. We just ba basically had broad ranging discussions around a whole lot of issues around the human rights humanitarian divide in general, but also around <clears throat> the question of disability. And we sought then to, I guess, you know, we went through a, a methodological process of coding these interviews and we came up with a a, some themes that were common across the interviews. So these were really around the importance of, you know, so the two themes were that North Korea is an exception. 
So this was something that was often repeated. Well, you know, when you when it comes to North Korea, we have to be creative and adaptive and flexible because it's just everything's just a bit different. Everything's a bit harder. Uh, we can't just this is not business as usual. Mm. And then I think even more explicitly was this idea that we came across again and again, which I, I might say just a little bit about around um, small steps towards change, which seems really obvious, right? But that um, when an actor carries out something or when something happens in North Korea, whether it's Katalina Devanda Zaguela um, getting access to North Korea or whether it's being able to build a hospital in a particular province or whether it's getting the Commission of Inquiry up or seeing a small kind of acceptance of a human rights norm that that while it's hard to say that things are definitively proving for people in North Korea, these actors will say, well, it's something and maybe this indicates more progress for the future. Maybe we can have a little bit of hope. Uh, and perhaps that's just what people need to tell themselves when they work in such a difficult environment. But actually, mm. you know, something that I'm sure you've heard, Jacko, is this invocation of the Helsinki Accords, which, you know, as often said, was was what brought about the end of the Cold War, that by putting human rights and security into different buckets, you could bring about change. Now, I think that's a bit simplistic when it comes to North Korea, because one of the reasons the Helsinki Accords was so successful was because it was uh, unintentional, that mm. by separa separating out these issues, something that was criticised by people who took a particular ideological or political position to these questions, that by separating out them, you actually, what you saw were that human rights issues, even just by being named, were in some ways legitimised. And you saw different groups kind of come out of the woodwork across Eastern Europe and, and a huge amount of change happen. Now, I don't think that will happen with North Korea because North Korea, you know, if it does anything well, it learns from history. And it very, mm. very well knows what happened um, to the Soviet Union. But I guess my point is, what the reason I um, invoke the Helsinki Accords is that what you see here is that it's never one big action that brings about change, right? And I think this is something that all these actors share. It's that this idea that everybody working on these issues, and especially if you come at these issues, not from an ideological or political position, if you're willing to be open-minded and think, okay, this is not a perfect change, but it's something, um, I don't think it's just accepting accepting things for the sake of it. I think it's not allowing the, the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And it's these actors are saying we, we're seeing progress and things are changing and it's hard to quantify and it's hard to identify and that's not very satisfactory to a lot of people especially people who want who have agendas but actually we can see that what we're doing makes a difference we can see what, what those guys over there are doing in their own way is making a difference too so I think that this idea that there's small steps towards meaningful change happening in the area of disability I think that mm. that's um, our you know that was the most common theme across the interviews. Uh, Nazanin, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think what I would just add is that uh, this idea of meaningful change in the context of North Korea, you know, North Korea, one thing that kept, kept coming up in interviews as well, even with people that have spent lots of time in the country, um, have spent years working on the country, you know, this kind of guessing around, well, why does this happen the way it does? Or we think yeah. this happened this way, or, you know, we see this and we think it might mean this, but maybe it means this. Um, because there's so much opacity when it comes to North mm. Korea. There's so, I don't, is that a word? There's so many things that are opaque when it comes to North Korea, right? Um, yeah. And so sometimes, you know, not to get too navel-gazy, but, you know, sitting here in my office in, in Melbourne, and when I, you know, mm. talk to people or read the books of people that have lived in North Korea for many years, um, you know, sometimes I feel a little uh, more 
comforted by my own lack of knowledge sometimes of seeing their own confusion about what's going on in North Korea, even when they lived there for a long time. And so I think in other contexts, this idea of, oh, we see small steps towards change, as Danielle said, may seem quite obvious. But I think in a context that has so many layers of challenge to try to understand what's going on, it is actually quite significant that two sets of actors with very different approaches to the same problem still decode what's happening as small steps towards meaningful change. Coming back to this uh, uh, divide between the humanitarian and human rights people, uh, in your paper you wrote that a common forum for dialogue or practice has, as a result, failed to materialize. And I wonder whether you found in your research interviews um, or just in reading elsewhere that there is a non-public exchanging of information between the two different groups, because ultimately, you know, their, their aims are, as you say, the same. And North Korea is, again, as you say, so opaque that the only way to be effective at the work that you do is to share information as much as possible, but that this has to be done in secret in case the North Korean state finds out. I think my answer to that would be that if they're not public, it's for a reason. And so yep. um, we'll keep it that way. We wouldn't answer okay. on that that, uh, given that, then why is uh, a common forum for dialogue or practice desirable? Um, I mean, is a common for, forum for dialogue or practice desirable? That's a great question. I I think ideally you would have one, right? You would be able to uh, communicate effectively to North Korea that just because you're talking about the right to food security doesn't mean you're trying to overthrow the regime. But as we mm. know in practice, that's not how it works. And we have... Um, actively seeing groups denied access to North Korea because they went to a meeting where there were human rights groups present. Like this has happened and this is what humanitarian groups are worried about. Mm. The human rights community is extremely eager to engage with the humanitarian community. Um, they both have very different reasons for concern. I guess um, I, when I first started looking into this issue back in the mid-2000s, there were some efforts. This was under um, progressive administration back then. There were some efforts then to... Um, have a common dialogue. So there was a, a group called the uh, um, Data, the Peace Foundation, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But they just never really took off because, and I, I mean, we're not really going to get into uh, Korean politics here because that's definitely not what we were looking at when it came to disability. But as you know, when, when it comes to this issue in North Korea, and certainly before the Commission of Inquiry, um, when the government changed, so did the potential to talk about these issues. So... Yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah, so I misspoke before. Back when the forum was trying to be established, it was under a conservative government. But then when a oh. progressive government came in, that it just becomes more complicated and the space changed. I don't think that that is so much the case now. I haven't noticed the potential space for talking about human rights. Like I think certainly the space for human rights in South Korea does is somewhat dependent on the government, but not to the degree it used to be. I think that there is much more of an acceptance of North Korean human rights is a valid and important topic of discussion. That's a big change, I think, in the last 15 years. Outside of the uh, the South Korean environment, so moving back into the international environment there, I've also heard people uh, talk about human rights being weaponized as a way to uh, attack and try to bring down or overturn the North Korean state. Is that something that's come out in your research? Um, I mean, I, yes, it has. I think it's, I think it's a simplistic way of talking about these things but what that basically refers to is this idea that and you see it I think you saw it honestly under the Trump administration a little bit that when actors are frustrated with North Korea they'll use human rights as a way to criticize it so 
there is that danger that human rights are being weaponized, but I think honestly that it's a way for those who are critical of the human rights community to criticize the human rights community quite more generally, whereas I think the human mm. rights community is actually quite diverse and nuanced and thoughtful um, for, you know, when, when you look at those who are deeply engaged in these issues, they're certainly not weaponizing the issue of human rights. Um, it's more a um, an easy barb thrown at this community, I would say, as a very short mm. answer to that very difficult question. Yeah. Now, the uh, the data for your paper uh, from the interviews was drawn from uh, pre-COVID experiences. And of course, as we've already mentioned, COVID really changed uh, and upturned a lot of things. Uh, during COVID, as, as I understand it, every humanitarian work project in North Korea was stopped or put on extended pause. And every group based in North, every foreign group based in North Korea had to leave. Uh, and every group that visited North Korea hasn't visited for, for three years. Uh, so efforts to offer humanitarian aid to North Korea during COVID, for example, offering free vaccinations, didn't appear to be welcomed. So how do you think the COVID period has affected both the uh, humanitarian rights and humanitarian work and discourse on North Korea? And do you expect that to continue? Yeah, I think one thing that is, you know, quite worrying is that humanitarian organizations that were on the ground, you know, were seeing things, right? Like, in not, and I don't mean mm. that in like a creepy way, but like, you know, they, they were on the ground, they were um, able to converse with their partners, they were able to visit project sites. And so, you know, they had an understanding of what was going on with their partners, um, with the institutions they worked with, with the programs that they were working on, you know, they had access to people, to places, to information, uh, maybe not always the full amount of access that they would like, but there was that, that access. And so the, you know, approach by humanitarian actors to work inside the country with the consent of the regime, as opposed to the human rights groups that work outside the country and in defiance of the regime, you know, that in and out was, I think, quite a big difference between the two approaches. But now that there's no humanitarian international humanitarian workers able to actually be doing that work inside the country, that also means that a source of understanding North Korea has been cut off. So that's, you know, we don't know a lot about the humanitarian situation because we don't have that source that we used to have. There's also mm. much fewer North Koreans um, escaping. So also that source of information that's really valuable for um, human rights activism has also been cut off. So the information trickle um, is, is quite worrying. But I think even without knowing specifics, we can deduce that the situation for both humanitarian and human rights of North Korean people, again, that they experience those um, simultaneously, you know, their, their general human security has likely suffered during the pandemic. Right. And it also, uh, not just the uh, international aid organizations, but even embassies, as you know, were, uh, were mostly closed in North Korea during COVID. And it seems from some people that I've talked to and some analysts that, uh, that North Korea's um, security apparatus was quite okay with the idea that uh, all foreign eyes were were leaving North Korea and not coming back they, they didn't seem to offer um you know any sort of concessions on uh, on staying and and or going back and forth if they were vaccinated or that sort of thing it, you know, they seemed to be quite happy with with not having foreign eyes on on the ground in Korea yeah but i think um you know that's the security uh, services perspective. I think, you know, mm. many humanitarian actors would say their partners would not be very happy with this decision. Yeah, sure. And so I, you know, I hope that we do see um, ability of humanitarian actors um, to be able to go back into the country sooner rather than later. But I think we're mm. just about coming up on the third year of the border closure. Yeah. So I'm not going to make any predictions here because I'll probably be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Now, uh, in June 2019, so that's what are we now? Three and a half, uh, three and a half years ago, a South Korean online newspaper that covers disability issues, ablenews.co.kr, reported a rumor that North Korea's Kim Moon Chol, who headed the Korean Federation for the Protection of the Disabled, that's the KFPD, uh, had been purged. Uh, that's not been confirmed, but also he hasn't been mentioned in the media since mid-2019. Now, if it's true that he had been sent away, perhaps to a, uh, a labor camp or for some re-education, could that be a sign that work promoting the rights of the disabled in North Korea might not be the ideal confluence of human rights and humanitarian work, or that there might be hazards for North Korean people working with international partners on humanitarian issues? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to comment on um, Kim Moon-chol's situation, simply because I just don't, I don't know. But I'm glad you bring up the Korean Federation for the Protection of the Disabled, because I think it's a really interesting organization. Um, they were founded, I believe, in 1998. Um, so it's not a new organization. And I believe it was modeled after um, some Chinese organization that was working also with people with disabilities. So, you know, the KFPD, I think they use the term civil society organization in some of their English language publications, but not civil society in the way we tend to understand it in democratic societies. Um, they are aligned and connected to the Ministry of Public Health, from my understanding. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't... Again, I, I don't know, you know, the situation exactly. I think, you know, no one does um, other than no, no one does. Involved. I can't you but I, I, because yeah. this um, organization has been around for a while and, you know, it has different, uh, they have actually a, a great website. Um, there's a lot of information on there. You know, you can look at their um, uh, org chart and see the different kind of branches that they have um, in different provinces. And Catalina Devendas Aguilar also highlights the KFPD in her uh, report and the work that they do. So um, I guess that could be one interpretation of these rumors, but I think also thinking about, you know, the history of this organization and, um, you know, the continued in engagement that it had, again, at least coming up to COVID, I think COVID has uh, put a lot of, you know, question marks around, around things. Mm -hmm. But I... And I'm not one to make predictions, but I would not be surprised to see the KFPD re-engaging with humanitarian actors as soon as it's um, able to once again. Uh, Danielle, as you and Nazanin worked together to research and write this paper, did you have uh, disagreements and heated discussions together coming as you do from two different sides of this equation? <laughs> Disappointingly, I think the answer to that is probably no. <laughs> ah. um, because we do, I think, share a common framework of understanding North Korea. And I think that actually, if you put a humanitarian worker and a human rights worker in the room, you would see the same thing. I can't, think, I don't, I, unless you got someone with an extreme view, um, you mm -hmm. would see them, you know, wildly agreeing with each other on a lot of things and um, probably coming to the conclusion that the work each other does is important and we can't do without it. So, no, I don't think, I think that just actually points to this idea that there's not, there is a divide and there's certainly a strong dichotomy and we see it play out in practice. But when it comes to ideas, I think it's largely an artificial divide, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a, it's a divide that has been born of necessity um, mm -hmm. and born of the particular circumstances that actors um, face in North Korea. And as Nazanin said earlier, North Korea is not the only place where this is the case, but it is an extreme example of it, as we often say about North Korea. So that's, I think, that's, I think why you haven't seen these heated disagreements, because we actually have just learned a lot from each other uh, and filled in mm -hmm. gaps for each other. Nazanin, any comments to add there? I think if anyone is still listening at this point and is an educator, um, I'm going to offer, you know, if anyone would want, want uh, us, I'm offering Danielle on this too, but 
for me, um, you know, to talk to classes about this, because I think for me, what's also interesting is I, I sometimes wonder, um, you know, I, I have a humanitarian studies background, but I've also been very involved in human rights activism. Um, mm. And so a lot of these human rights ideas were not um, foreign to me because I had engaged with them just in my own in my own activism, um, not human rights related to North Korea, but other human rights issues. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, if I had kind of if I'd done the human rights masters instead of the humanitarian masters, would I be doing very mm. different work? And so I think, you know, talking to students and people that are, um, you know, learning about where they see their place in addressing this question of suffering for North Koreans is really, really valuable. And I would love to talk to more students that are trying to figure out where they see their place in that and how they can understand the two groups, um, but also perhaps how to bridge some of these divides. I think that's um that is a fantastic idea, and it, it's a, it's a very important topic. The paper that you've written together, I think, is a, a paper that people in the human rights and humanitarian fields will hopefully read and be discussing and learning from for a long time to come. And I want to thank you both for writing it and for coming on the show to talk about it. Thanks so much, Jacko. If anyone is interested in reading it but doesn't have institutional access, we'll give you a link that hopefully will overcome that barrier, the paywall, but also people are welcome to email us as well. We're, we're, we're very keen to share this work and to continue to have conversations um, oh, with practitioners and with scholars and with students uh, or just with people who are interested in North Korea and listening, listening to you. Great. Thank you. Please send that link to me and we'll put that in the show notes uh, as well as uh, links to your uh, your Twitter accounts as well. Uh, so thanks once again to Nathanine Zade Cummings and Danielle Chubb for joining me on the show today. Look out for their paper, International Engagement with North Korea, Disability, Human Rights and Humanitarian Aid published online in Third World Quarterly uh, on 18th of November, 2022. And we'll put a link in the show notes. That's the end of our episode today. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arius Dare for facilitating this episode, and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, coughing, awkward sinuses, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much for listening again next time. Bye.